This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Now we've gone through Matthew for quite a number of months, and now we're at Matthew 16. And now I want to start off by asking you this question. And the question is this, what price tag would you put on your soul? What price tag would you put on your soul? This is an inevitable question we have to ask ourselves as we kind of navigate through life, as we interact with society, with religions, with worldviews, and even with God. How we live our life is ultimately the price tag we place on our soul. How we live our lives is ultimately the price tag we put on our soul. So as we come to Matthew 16, there is one question, and this is the one, that we must confront because as people interact with Jesus, how they respond to Jesus will also ultimately be the price tag that they put on their lives. So come with me to Matthew 16, as it begins with the arrival of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Look at verse 1 with me in your passage. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now here's a little bit of a background. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're actually not the best of friends. The Pharisees are prone to add to scriptures. They create a lot of tradition of the elders. And the Sadducees have the tendency and they're prone to remove things from scriptures. They only believe in the first five books and they do not believe in resurrection. So here we have the former ones, the Pharisees, they, they, they focus on rituals. The second group, the Sadducees, they, they focus on being rational. The first one focus on um, how they should follow certain ways uh, to keep God's law and the others will just talk about um, how it works kind of politically at times. On a usual occasion, you will find that these two groups will kind of have their go at each other, but not today. Because today, they have decided to join hands. You know, for those of you who watch Marvel comics, we have Professor X and Magneto. They're kind of nemesis against each other because they have totally different ideologies. But on rare occasion, you actually have Professor X and Magneto coming together because they are faced with someone much greater and they need to get rid of that person because that enemy disrupts their status quo. They can't even fight with each other because this is too powerful for them to carry on the argument. So here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They found great hostility in Jesus and they are willing to compromise their differences to confront Jesus. And here Matthew says that they came together to test Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven to prove that he is God, or he is from God. They are not here because they are kind of curious about Jesus, but they view Jesus as a threat to their current religious stability and their current religious power. So they demand Jesus to perform a sign with such divine significance that without a, a a glimpse of doubt that he must be from God. They're asking him to create a miracle. And, but this is kind of really the irony because the, the way that Matthew has gone through is Jesus has just fed 5,000 and Jesus has just fed 4,000 out of kind of crumbs. And those who have seen the signs, 
they should have noticed that only one other person or one other being has ever done this. And that's God. God was the only one in Exodus during the time from Egypt to the promised land that God fed the people with manna. But they couldn't see it. So Jesus refused to engage the Pharisees and the Sadducees with their test, but he turns around and condemned them. Look at verse 2. Jesus said this, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, today will be stormy, for the sky is red and outcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of times. Jesus begins by pointing, you know, how capable you are to interpret worldly matters, but you are unwilling or unable to interpret the spiritual matters. You know what? You claim to be the spiritual elites, yet you refuse to interpret the signs that are pointing to Jesus as God's Messiah. The man to have seen the miracles of Jesus and start to realize this is who God has planned. But they, their eyes are blind and they refuse to acknowledge Jesus because their security of their religious security and their political powers are too important for them to actually respond to Jesus. They treasure their own authority too much to be humble before Jesus. No wonder Jesus says in verse 4, he says this as he looks at them and says, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the supposed people of God. They are meant to interpret and recognize the coming of God's King, God's Messiah, Jesus son of David. But because of their hearts, they refuse to. They have prophecies given to them. They have Jesus fulfilling the prophecies. They've heard the words of Jesus, but yet they would refuse to interpret them to who Jesus is meant to be. As you look at verse 4, it's a very sobering note here as Jesus gave a condemnation and he walks away. What looks like a kind of a retreat of Jesus has become a judgment on those who opposes him and who refuses to see him. Now, as you kind of pause here for a moment, it's worth pondering how much worth we're actually putting to our own souls. You know, in our generations, we can run to the experts who can interpret the weather, the economy, the the stock market, the property market, we can run to life coaches, we can run to positive psychologists or health gurus. Yet, you know, we tend to avoid another side to interpret what is moral, what is right, what is judgment, and if God truly is there. So like the Pharisees and Sadducees, there are times that we may not want to give up what we have, and there will be times that we will hide behind a statement like this. If God will reveal himself, Show me that sign, I will come to believe in him. Other than that, well, leave me alone, and I should live the way that I want. But Jesus reveals the underlying issue of the Pharisees and the Sadducees by refusing to perform a sign demanded of him. For the underlying issue of the Pharisees and the Sadducees are actually not a lack of evidence. 
the underlying issue is their price, their status, their pride, and their fame too much to be able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So as we kind of just pause here for a moment, the question for us is, what is the price tag that you place on your soul? The Pharisees, the Sadducees have begun to show their true colors and what is really important to them. We have seen it in the past chapters and it's going to become more and more obvious as we go on the Gospel of Matthew. But now as Jesus moves on, we then read a kind of a sadly humorous account here. You know what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they refuse to interpret the signs of time, meaning the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah. The disciples of Jesus, now they could not interpret the signs of danger that's coming towards them. The disciples were like sheep among the wolves. The, the disciples are surrounded by hostility and wrong teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yet, they're kind of too busy with their daily affairs to take notice of the storm that is coming. Look at verse 5 with me on this account. When they went on across the lake, the disciples kind of forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the ease of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they went disgust among themselves. It says, it's because we did not bring any bread. Now Jesus is warning his disciples the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That opposition against Jesus is rising. And even the Pharisees and Sadducees, the nemesis against each other, they kind of become friends. And they're heading towards Jesus. The storm is coming. But you know what? The disciples' mind are kind of thinking about food. And they're like, oh dear, we're going to go hungry again. But really, they have one sitting in their boat who has fed 5,000 and 4,000. So notice the strange way that Jesus replies to them when they were thinking about bread. Look at verse 8 with me. After they have misunderstood Jesus, you know, we would kind of expect Jesus to say, you of little understanding, why are you so stupid? Right? I'm not talking about bread, but this is not what Jesus said. He says, you of little faith. Because here is the issue with the disciples. Their lack of faith in Jesus to provide for them has caused them to actually misunderstood Jesus' teachings. Just wanted them to recognize the earlier interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees and what it is heading towards them. But because of their lack of faith, they interpret everything and thinking about the food that they, they need and they are not having. I'm not sure about you, but there are occasions for me when I feel like a man of kind of little faith. Sometimes I get distracted by worry, worries. I forgot that my Lord has always cared for me and He has always provided for me and sometimes more obvious than I could just ignore. But sometimes because I'm distracted, I start to miss out important points as I read the Bible of warnings because I've kind of got my own kind of worries to think about. I don't know, that's me, but how about you? Have there been times that you too are disciples of little faith? That you forgot the power and the provision that God has provided for you all the past of your life. That we are preoccupied with the worries of the kingdom of the earth. That we start to miss out the warnings when God speaks about the enemies of the kingdom of heaven. Because that is exactly what is happening to the disciples. They are worrying about bread, forgetting that the Lord has fed the 5,000 and 4,000 and they are just not hearing the warnings and the teachings of Jesus. 
But kind of thankfully, Jesus interrupted their kind of navel-gazing, bread-thinking kind of issues, and he points them straight to the danger. I'm talking about the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No, whether it's the Pharisees who kind of bear, put unbearable yoke, or the Sadducees that kind of removes hope by telling there's no resurrection, Jesus is saying, watch out for their teachings because like yeast, they'll contaminate the whole of you. Just grab a bit of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees and you will soon be like them, undiscerning who Jesus really is and start to draw our own conclusion on how we should just live our lives. But the truth is that how they and we respond to Jesus will ultimately review the condition of our hearts, the priorities of our lives, and ultimately the price tag that we are putting on our soul. And meanwhile, even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they could not get Jesus to perform signs in their beatings, the, the reality is that more and more people are starting to kind of get amazed by Jesus' miracles and his teachings. In fact, the inevitable inevitable question that goes around coffee table and dinner table at this point is that who exactly is this Jesus and what do we do with that answer? That is what is going through the crowd's mind. They're saying, who exactly is this Jesus and what do we do with who he is? Now, as people start to form their views of Jesus, Jesus starts to see that this is now the time to confront those in his inner circle with this same question. So look at verse 13 to 21 as we catch a glimpse of the first profession amongst Jesus' disciples that he is the Messiah. Look at verse 13 with me. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is kind of the northern edge of the Jewish region before you reach the uh, Gentile region, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now that's kind of an easy, non-threatening question for disciples. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they kind of replied, verse 14, Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. It's easy, right, when you're asking, what do other people say you can give all you want? All the disciples kind of chip in, this says this, some says that, that says this. There are plenty of favorable answers about who's, who Jesus is. No, at least kind of mostly compliment, at least what we have right here. But then, Jesus turns to them and says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? It's kind of a trick question, right? You say, ah, this is easy. But then he turns around and says, Who do you say I am? Jesus says, You who have observed me in close proximity, you have seen how I live, what I've done, how I do things. Who do you say I am? How will Jesus' disciples respond to Jesus? This is where Simon Peter, who is often the spokesperson of the twelve, replied verse 16. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This declaration of Peter is a very dangerous declaration. A lot is at stake for the followers of Jesus to confess Jesus is the Messiah. That is, Jesus is God's anointed king, the rightful king to David's kingdom. In fact, Peter didn't say that Jesus is just the Messiah. He says 
You are the Messiah. In fact, you are God's very own son. No, by confessing Jesus as the Messiah, Peter and the rest of the disciples could easily be looked upon as potential rebels against the Roman Empire because that's what people view the Messiah is. And it's a very bold claim made by Peter. Perhaps more than Peter will have realized that his declaration here is going to be the foundational declaration of all who comes after him, all who wants to follow Jesus, all who wants to be Christians. They have to confess what Peter is confessing here. Now, would you and I make this confession? Let's say if we are not in Singapore, we live in a country where the dictator will not take you very kindly to have another king. Would you and I have declared what Peter did? Because that's what Peter did. In the Roman Empire, he says, you are the Messiah, you are God's son. So in response to that, look at verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. On this rare occasion, Jesus addressed Peter by his full name. His father is Jonah. He says, No, it's not by human fathers or the humans that you know this. It is by the heavenly Father who has revealed this to you. You know, scriptures has been given, miracles have been performed, words have been taught. But unless the Heavenly Father reveals to you, you will not be able to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There is no human effort in realizing Jesus is the Messiah because it is the work of the Heavenly Father who allows you to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Jesus continues, verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I have to say that there are volumes of books written about verse 18. Ink and blood have been spilt over who exactly or what exactly is the rock Jesus will build his church on. Um, all through church history, the Roman Catholics would have held that the rock is Peter, and Jesus is giving uh, Peter a special office in the church at this point of time. Meanwhile, the Eastern Orthodox or the Protestants, the rest of the centuries, they held that actually the rock is not Peter, the rock is Peter's confession. The others um, who comes to Jesus comes in the way of Peter's confession. And, in re- and, and then there are other t- others in recent time who actually recognize that perhaps the rock is Jesus himself because all through the Bible, the rock in the Old Testament is always used about God and the New Testament is used to Jesus and his teachings. But still there are others who are Protestants. They say that, well, Peter is the rock but only as the first professing Christians. There will be many more Christians who will be built on Peter the Rock, and that's when the church is being built on. There's more that I could kind of talk about in this, and I'm happy that we can engage this further in Q&A later if you have questions. But I just want to point out a few things of what this verse is or is not saying. I think, first of all, I think it's not really saying that Peter is going to get a special office 
that is above the rest of the apostles in the church. That Peter is perhaps the first pope that he could kind of pass on his office to the rest after him. Because we kind of see that actually Peter is quite a fallible person. Later on in Galatians, Paul actually rebukes Peter because he has made an error. And he has said something that's clearly wrong. And Acts, later on we do see that the, the leadership seems to be on, on James. And, um, and there's no fight about who must be that one leader. And if we look on further in the scriptures, neither Peter or anyone else. In fact, there are two other occasions where Jesus made this profession in the other gospel that mentions about um, Peter being um, the head of all the others. So that's that's one thing that it seems to at least not point that um, is that obvious. The second one is actually in terms of how the Protestant traditions view it. And here I'll give you that tree that I kind of briefly mentioned. And uh, whichever tree you kind of hold on to, it, it has something that are consistent. But let me give you the first, the, this tree first. The first one is, the Protestant Christians believe that the rock is kind of the confession of Peter. It's been tradition for a long time. Which Jesus used, which, the confession of Peter which Jesus used to build his church. The second one as well, the rock is, is Peter. Not as the office, but as the first of all the other Christians who have made the confession. And the third is, the rock is Jesus, because that's how rock has always been used in the Old Testament and even the various instances in the New Testament. But whichever of these three you hold, there are a few things that are consistent here. The first is that Peter, he did not by his own effort recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says that it is true the heavenly father, that you can profess this. Number two, all who wants to put their faith in Jesus will have to do the same as how Peter did. They have to confess Jesus is the Messiah. And this can only happen if the heavenly father allows them to. And finally, salvation, if you read through the whole Bible, is never by Peter, nor by any other intermediary. Salvation is always in Jesus alone. So there you have it. But if you have more questions, I'm happy to engage later on. But this is where we have in verse 17, because there's been a big, um, it's a big um, historical legacy on this verse. But with verse 17, we understand and we look on to verse 18, where Jesus goes on into verse 19. Sorry, verse 18, and Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 19 that Peter is given the keys to bind and loose people from the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's not just to Peter but to all the disciples of Jesus. Because just two chapters later, in chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus, while speaking to his disciples, he said this, Truly I tell you, the disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So these keys are given to Peter and the other disciples who profess Jesus is the Messiah because they recognize that it is through Jesus alone that one can enter the kingdom of heaven. And by recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, they have become those who are able to interpret the signs of times. Now how about us? Who do you and I say Jesus is? It's not going to be a magical word that if you say it, you're going to bounce straight into heaven. But it's a confession of who we truly recognize Jesus is. Now, after Peter has made this historically most important declaration, 
Peter might perhaps that, no, I've just signed up to be one of the rebels. We're going to have a strategy to go against the Roman Empire and Jesus will tell us what to do. We are going to establish a new kingdom here in Jerusalem, but how wrong Peter is going to be. Look at what Jesus reveals about his strategy. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, Jesus' strategy is not really what Peter or any Jews are kind of expecting. It's not a kind of a military campaign, but it's a journey of shame. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be suffered, I'm going to suffer under the Jewish leaders, I'm going to be killed and raised to life. In fact, Jesus has no intention to build kind of a physical kingdom in Jerusalem anytime soon. And so Peter, he kind of not fully understand the role of Messiah yet. He decides to kind of verbalize his thoughts to the Messiah. And perhaps given the great compliment he has, he decides to give his share of advice to Jesus. So look at what he says in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, what do you make with this passage now? Now, if earlier on we had taken a view that Peter is entrusted with a special office in the church, then now verse 23 is suggesting that we are kind of in a, in a bit of a trouble because Jesus is saying, Peter, get behind me, Satan. So how do we kind of reconcile this too. Is Peter the blessed one? Or is Peter the Satan that Jesus is saying? Well, I guess the, the answer of this, whether he's blessed or Satan, lies actually in what Peter says, isn't it? If in, in Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, he stands as the first amongst the community of believers. He's the first who actually confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. But in his refusal for Jesus to suffer and die, Peter becomes a hindrance to the very core of why Jesus came. He came to suffer and die so that we can live. He came to bring the kingdom of heaven through the cross. And if Jesus listens to Peter, that will be exactly how Satan wants it to happen, isn't it? Because in chapter 4, we read earlier on that Satan says, forget about suffering. You come to me, I give you the kingdom. But that's not the way of the Messiah, neither is that the way of the followers of Jesus. And so after talking about what the Messiah must do, Jesus now turns to what his disciples must do. So let's look at the last few verses of today's chapter from verse 24 to verse 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, having seen the Pharisees and Sadducees, their the refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah, having seen the disciples' kind of tendency to be distracted by worldly needs, Jesus turns to speak about the cause of actually following God's version of the Messiah. And this is it. The way to follow Jesus is not self-affirming, comfort-seeking, or self-glorifying. The way to follow the Messiah is self-denying, cross-bearing, 
and Christ seeking. Let me unpack this for us. The path of worldliness as we look at the world is to kind of affirm ourselves. That's how the world will teach us. Affirm ourselves, seek our own interests, and our own personal happiness and comfort is our top priority. That's where if you find a self-help book, this will be the number one topic. How to find happiness in this world and how to be the maximum of who you can be. But Jesus instructs his disciples, this is not the way for you. This is the way of the world. Your way is this. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves. We must leave ourselves behind. But then how, what does leaving ourselves behind actually look like? Denying ourselves means not kind of being self-seeking or self-interest in our daily decision. It's about kind of thinking about others, especially their spiritual needs. You know, perhaps our time, our resource, our energy are sacrificially given so that others may have a chance to know the Lord Himself. Sometimes denying ourselves may mean that we do not work just to get a praise, just to get promotion, just to get acknowledgement. But denying ourselves may mean that we will take up a job or a service that is totally thankless. You do it for them and you get the blame for it. Denying ourselves may also mean that we'll ask, how will God use whatever situation I'm in to glorify Him? Rather than ask, God, what is your will for me to get the max out of life? Because, you know, decision making, we always, what is God's will for me? It can go two ways, right? The way of the world is, God, what's the, what's your will for me to max out and to be most prosperous and to be great and to be powerful? But the self-denying say, God, what's your will for me such that I can glorify you so that people can hear and come to know Jesus? If you're kind of, if you're going to approach Peter and Apostle, he says, hey Peter, you know what? What does it mean to deny yourself? You know what Peter and disciples will do? They'll say, look at him. Look at Jesus. That is what denial means. Him, whose very nature God, came down to suffer and die so that we can take His place and be called the children of God. For only if we are willing to deny ourselves, as the Messiah did, will we be able to hear Jesus' next instruction, which is to take up our cross. Jesus is not saying, take up your sword for victory. He says, take up your cross. Because you'll be shamed, just as I have been, in a world that does not want me. There's no romantic notion about taking up the cross and to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of um, a great theologian during World War II, he speaks about following Jesus this way. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Let me say that again. Uh, Bonhoeffer says this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What he's saying is this, there's no romantic notion about following Jesus. It's, it's not like this that some people think, you know, you give to God financially and at some point in life he will make you wealthy or kind of you give up a relationship with a non-Christian and sometime God will give you a prince charming or princess whatever in later part of life. It could be that you give it up to God and you never have it back. It could mean that you give up this relationship and you have none. It is not a romantic notion that you give something God this life and you'll get something back. But the reality is this. 
that following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is a raw confrontation between the world's desire and Christ's desire. Let me say that again. Following Jesus is a raw confrontation between the world's desire and Christ's desire. And here is the reality of life from the words of Jesus in verse 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. In a sense, figurative speaking, life is kind of like water or sand. The more you have some water, the more you kind of grab it, you kind of just splash out and leaves your hand. So to spend all our lives, to kind of live for ourselves, to spend all our resources, to kind of accomplish our bucket list, or to hold on to that mantra of fear of missing out, or ultimately, personal happiness is the goal of life. Jesus is saying in verse 25, the more you try to grab it, the more you will lose it. But the other holds true. Those who are willing to lose our life for Jesus' sake, who put God's priority in every area of life, Jesus says, you know what? You've actually found life. Whoever loses his life, their life for me will find it. Or to put it another way, verse 26, this is what Jesus says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So think with Jesus for, for, for a minute. He says, let's say max out your life. You can have any life you want. You can be the richest man. You can be the most handsome or beautiful Hollywood star. You can have any kind of lifestyle, no question asked. But if you lose your soul, what value is that? Because the richest man can't buy back his soul. Jesus says, your soul is worth more than the whole temporal world add together. Dear friends, what is the price tag that we will place on our souls? For the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they have placed their pride, success, religious fame as the price tag of their soul. They will choose to reject Jesus in order to keep their religious fame, power and pride. For some others, they will place wealth or pleasure or safety or relationship as the price tag for their soul. For those things, they will choose to ignore Jesus or to think about judgment. But how about us? Just think about ourselves. How about us? How we respond to Jesus will ultimately reveal the price tag that we have put on our soul. Will we acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? Will we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him? What price tag will we put on our soul? No, Jim Elliot answers this question with his famous quote. Jim Elliot says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. Jim Elliot says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. To Jim Elliot, the soul is worth more than this fleeting world's worth. And so he put the eternal price tag on his soul and he literally gave up his life for it. To the world, those who deny themselves, carry the cross, follow Jesus, they look like fools. But Jesus says, it is totally worth it. And this is how Jesus says in verse 27, 
For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. When the Messiah returns in full glory, we who are given our lives to follow Him will be rewarded with eternal rewards. What price tag will we put also? And this is how Jesus ends today's passage. After saying all of that, he turns to his disciples who are standing there listening to him and he said, verse 28, Some of you will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that mean? You know what? Some will catch a glimpse of the kingdom to come in Jesus' lifetime. You know what? Peter, James, John, just next chapter, next week, they will catch a glimpse of Jesus in his glory and transfiguration. Eleven of them will see Jesus' death and his resurrection rising up in his resurrected body that points this is how we will be when we are raised as well. And just a few will see in AD 70 when the Jerusalem temple crashes down and so marks the closure of the old ways to God because Jesus is the way to the kingdom of heaven. Dear friends, what price tag will we put on our soul? Jesus says it will cost us everything. But if we lose our soul for his sake, we shall never lose it again in eternity. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.